Welcome to What a Scream, the horror movie podcast where I, your host, Green, chats with a guest about horror films. And we talk about two films that have to do with a certain subject that has previously, sometimes, but not this time, randomly chosen. Um, This week, my guest is Mike Munzer from the Evolution of Horror podcast. And together we are talking about another David. A couple of weeks ago it was David Cronenberg, but this week it is David Lynch, which again is another blind spot for me. Apparently I just don't get with the Davids. I am changing that. I'm definitely changing that. What with Cronenberg and Lynch, and I also discussed Fincher with um, Tim on the Moving Pictures podcast. Um, So we are talking about this week we're talking about A Raise Ahead from 1977, as well as Blue Velvet from 1986. So enjoy my chat with Mike. So I would like to welcome to What a Scream, Mike Munzer. How are you? Hello, I'm really good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. I am. Well, our, our subject today is Lynch and I'm very lynched up. Uh, haven't <laughs> woken up this morning and finished one of these films. So... Wow, yes, yeah. you were, you got up at like six in the morning to finish one of these films. Yeah. That is not necessarily the time of day to be watching David Lynch. Although maybe it is, I don't know, maybe in a slight dozy half dream state is the way to enjoy his movies, I don't know. Well, I watched, so the, the one of the films we're covering is A Razor Head and I watched that the other day before going to sleep mm-hmm. and I had the weirdest dreams ever. <laughs> but yeah. I woke up for the first time in like weeks, I'd woke up with no backache. So I thought maybe this surrealist dream that I had had kind of lulled me into a relaxed state. So, Oh, there yeah. you go. You see, I think David Lynch himself would like to know that, that it kind mm. of puts you in a nice tranquil kind of Zen state. Maybe. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but before we get into our subject, would you like to introduce yourself and tell listeners who you are and what you do? Sure, yeah. So um, I'm Mike Munzer. I'm the host and the creator of the Evolution of Horror podcast, which basically just explores the history of the genre. It kind of does what the title suggests, really. So we kind of look at different subgenres, different seasons, um, and kind of explore everything in the world of horror from the sort of early origins of cinema all the way through to now. And we've done everything from kind of vampire movies to slasher movies to ghosts to kind of body horror. At the moment, we're doing home invasion movies. So it's kind of a real in-depth look at every corner of the horror genre and its history basically yeah the i love your podcast mainly because you you. just find like films that you would never have heard about like Mm. you know i found one of my favorite films alice sweet alice from listening to your podcast way back when oh wow yeah what a film right it's incredible yeah that's that's kind of my favorite part about making the the podcast really is that with each season each subgenre, i then do like lots of kind of deep dive research into it and try and find all those kind of weird and wonderful movies that people might not have heard of I've also got so many amazing kind of co-hosts and guests and listeners that have seen most of them have seen more stuff than me and so they recommend stuff to me that I should check Mm. out as well and it's really great for just discovering all these little gems absolutely yeah and the the most recent series the home invasion I think has been one of the most interesting it's one of my favorite subgenres. yeah it's just I, I like the way that you explore 
the evolution of it. It's not just straightforward, like, this is home invasion horror. It's like, let's go all the way back to, yeah. like, you know, almost um, Edgar Allan Poe kind of time. And, you know, yeah. like, let's <clears throat> let's see how it's developed and how it's become what it is today. And I found that really interesting. Yeah, me too. It's it's probably been my favourite season to record. And I, uh, like, I think it, it's been particularly fascinating in a kind of post-COVID way mm. in looking at our relationships with our own homes, I suppose, and how that has kind of changed and the way the home has been used in horror since the beginning of the genre, basically, mm. all the way through to now and how some of those movies, those kind of like woman trapped in a house movies from the 1930s and 40s have evolved to be you know become films like funny games and the strangers mm-hmm. and the, the more traditional home invasion films yeah it's been it's been really interesting and it's also been the one that you know i've had the most amount of feedback from people going oh it's my least favorite subgenre. it's the scariest it's the most triggering it's the one i can't watch you know um so okay. again that's been really interesting to unpick like what it is about home invasion that really gets to people in a kind of visceral way you know yeah i find home invasion weird because i'm not i wouldn't find it scary mm. or disturbing but i still love it mm-hmm. and yeah. I, I don't know why yeah no i think <laughs> i think that's that kind of gets to the root of why we all like horror in the first place yeah. right like we we like movies that fuck us up and freak us <laughs> out you know and so yeah like it's it's interesting that for so many people home invasion isn't that you know Mm. because sometimes I'm like yeah but I thought you'd like being scared so why don't you like home but it's just it's a little bit too close to reality for some people yeah yeah Yeah. um so how did you get into horror and do you remember what the very first horror film you ever saw was I do yeah um it's for me and I I think this is probably the case with so many people of our generation I'm sure you've had other guests naming this movie Scream. It was Where's Craven mm-hmm. Scream from 1996. I was a kid. I was born in 1987, so I would have been about nine years old when it came out. But I had older siblings who mm-hmm. rented it from our local video store. I stayed up, or I or actually, what happened was I had to go to bed early before they watched it, but I was dying to see it. I remember seeing the cover and thinking, I really want to watch this. I was really intrigued by it. They sent me to bed and didn't let me watch it, my older sisters at the time. But I got up, as kids do, really early at like 5.30, 6 in the morning or something. And uh, instead of watching like Saturday morning cartoons before the rest of my family woke up, I like snuck on that rented VHS of Scream and watched it from the beginning at like 6 a.m. Uh, finished the whole film before my whole family got up. And, uh, and, and I absolutely loved it. It like blew my mind. I remember just thinking, this is the coolest, scariest, most exciting film I've ever seen in my life. I was probably, yeah, like, 10 years old or something so way too young probably to be watching a slasher film especially a very like meta slasher film that is Mm. kind of commenting on this genre that I have absolutely no idea about but uh, I I loved it found it really kind of an exhilarating fun experience this feeling of being very scared but also kind of in a safe way and I just I just kind of kept wanting to chase that feeling again and again and again afterwards and uh, also Scream is a perfect movie for giving you a little watch list of titles because the characters talk about, you know, oh, Halloween, Friday the 13th, mm-hmm. and Nightmare on Elm Street. Like, they they drop in all these names of these movies, and I was kind of taking a mental note of, like, ooh, I want to see this, I want to see this. So that was kind of how it began for me, yeah. Mm. So what you're saying is Scream is a good uh, gateway horror into... It is, really. Yeah. <laughs> I think it is. It's weird, isn't it? Because it clearly, it definitely wasn't designed as that. It's, mm. it's, you know, we talked about it in my slasher series of the podcast, as it it almost feels like an endpoint to the slasher subgenre it's mm. kind of like well it's the ultimate commentary on that subgenre it's like what more can you do beyond scream and i think the slasher movie has really struggled since scream you know like it, it hasn't really had that kind of big boom in the way that it had previously um 
but it is also a really good basis of kind of like yeah let's go back and uh and check out some of these movies that they reference yeah yeah i'm really interested in people's entry points into horror and how perhaps mm it has caused them to develop later on in life. Yeah. Like even the dream I had after watching A Razor Head, there was a segment in it where I was showing my six-year-old son The Exorcist mm. and just being like, here you go, experience it. Wow. Oh, my <laughs> and, God. Right? But, like, I know I've had guests that have been like, yeah, I watched The Exorcist at six years old. Like, Yeah, yeah. And I just think it's so, like, I'd love if I was of any sort of scientific mind, I'd love to do a study on, like, what were people's entry points into horror and how has that affected them in any sort of way. Mm-hmm. But I'm not of a scientific mind, so I won't be doing that. No, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And and Scream is a kind of fun, safe horror, it I would is, say, yeah. really. The Exorcist is, that's darker, that's 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 got to do something to you, age six or whatever, hasn't it? <laughs> do you, <laughs> you reckon, know? though, like it would still have that same effect on a six-year-old now or an eight-year-old. Let's let's be a bit nicer. Like, would it still have that same effect because they're well, already seeing things every day, you know? Like, when yeah. we look at the different generations. That's true. And, and I think also, I think the scenes with Reagan would would still freak out mm. kids but actually the thing i'd be intrigued to know is wouldn't wouldn't kids be bored watching the exorcist mm. that young because it's quite a lot of the exorcist that is just it's quite adult stuff of just like adults talking in rooms mm. right and then there is the occasional horrible visceral scene of reagan's head spinning or you know whatever i think those scenes probably would still be quite scary to, to yeah. children because because also it's happening to a child as well like yeah. those screams of linda blair and her yelling out for her mom and suffering mm. i feel like that would be very scary for a kid but yeah. everything else i'd be like i reckon six-year-olds would probably fall asleep in in, yeah. in the talky bits you know probably I, i'm not gonna try it out i'm not gonna subject no. <laughs> don't worry yeah. i'm not that bad mm. um okay so let's begin then with David Lynch, our subject for today. Um, I let you choose the subject. I've I've been so nice to my guests recently and been letting them choose their (laughs) subjects. Um, And you chose David Lynch. Um, I, complete blind spot, you know, I was saying this before we came on the podcast, the three Davids, Cronenberg, Lynch and Fincher are just blind spots for me. Mm -hmm. So what is your relationship like with David Lynch? I'm obsessed with David Lynch. He, he's he's <laughs> my he's my favorite filmmaker of all time. Um, I first came. Funnily enough, you talk about the Davids. I think I first discovered a David Lynch film because I thought it was a David Fincher film. I got Lynch and Fincher mixed up in my head, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, I want to see the um, this film made by the guy who made Seven. Like, cool. Maybe it will be a spooky kind of thriller in the way that uh, you know, uh, Panic Room and and uh, and seven were. And then I saw this like weird, surreal, you know, absolute nightmare fest and was like, what the hell is this? But actually, I, I kind of loved it. I think Blue Velvet w- was that movie and, and was my kind of gateway into David Lynch. Um, and I don't know, I've just been absolutely fascinated and obsessed with his films ever since. He is a very, very divisive filmmaker and I can completely understand why he's not for everyone. Like his films are strange and they don't really have a lot of them don't really have your kind of typical sort of narrative plot points they're sort of dreamlike um so i understand that they're not for everyone and i think he he has a reputation as his films have a reputation as being kind of like i don't know sort of highbrow or inaccessible or art house right Mm -hmm. and 
I I think I that's something I sort of disagree with actually. Like I, I think that, and I think David Lynch himself would push back on that. Like that idea that his films are only for kind of quote unquote sort of highbrow cinephiles or whatever. Like I think actually it's the opposite. He his films don't require you to sort of think. They're more about mood, you know, it's it's kind of the opposite to a filmmaker like Chris Nolan or Darren Aronofsky, where it's almost like he wants to tell you what every single shot in his film means. And it's all very planned out and it all he- like works towards some sort of theme or metaphor. David Lynch kind of does the opposite where he kind of like he goes with whatever fits the mood of a particular film. You know, he he came from a background where he was a he was an artist, he was a painter and he's a kind of carpenter. And he's very much one of those people like there are, there's video footage of him kind of making stuff like cabinets and stuff. And he'll start making something and he'll get halfway through it and he'll he'll be like, hmm, actually, I think this is a table and not a cat. And he'll just like change it midway through. And that's kind of what he does with films, too. Like he will come up with an initial idea and then he'll start making it. But then things will happen to him or things will happen on set and he'll kind of roll with it and move that into the story. There are all these famous stories about Twin Peaks, about how he accidentally caught a glimpse in a like in a in a shot of one of the set dressers was 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 like standing behind the camera and was um you could see him in the mirror accidentally in the background of one of the shots and david lynch loved this and he said keep it in because it's really fucking creepy and then that guy that was caught in the mirror this like random set dresser became bob like the big bad guy of twin peaks from an accident so he's one of these people that goes with his gut and he goes with a kind of mood and i think you've got to kind of be on board with that when you watch it. Like you've got to just Mm. like absolutely go where the film takes you, go where the mood takes you and and go on this kind of almost um, sort of emotional sort of visceral journey more than a kind of straightforward narrative journey, you know? Yeah. I was chatting to a few of the girls from girls magazine this morning in our chat, just saying, you know, I've been awake since 6am watching a David Lynch (laughs) film. Um, And, you know, I was kind of, after I'd finished it, I was, you know, looking at various video essays, written essays, so mm. many that are just analyzing every last crack of his film. Yeah. But I get, I mean, I haven't watched a lot of his stuff, but I get the impression that a lot of the time there's all this like almost an over analytical viewpoint of his films that really yes. he's just like, no, I I literally just want you to sit in this film and not be like, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that represent? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I feel the same. You know, like when you're in school and you're doing poetry and they're like, what does this line mean? And it's like nothing. The poet meant nothing by it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes (laughs) something is just there to make you feel something you know and he he's he's not i don't i don't mean this in a mean way i mean this in the best possible way i don't think he's a particularly intellectual person david lynch like and he yeah he goes with his gut he um his favorite film of all time is the wizard of oz it's not like some sort of i don't know jean-luc godard film or or ingmar bergman like he he loves this technicolor dreamscape movie about a girl falling asleep and then going into this dream world essentially and mm. that is kind of the basis of most of what what his films are really that they are like they're like being inside dreams a lot of the time mm. um and he practices transcendental meditation and so he's very much a kind of like he's a he's a kind of spiritual uh sort of metaphysical type of person and that kind of translates into his films i think you know yeah i definitely get that because like the first time i watched a race ahead um i was like what the hell's going on <laughs> like oh, yeah. what yeah what yeah. <laughs> and i couldn't 
I, I felt a strong discomfort with it. Whereas yes. um, the, the times I've seen it afterwards, I've very much like taken out my logical mind and just mm. gone with it. And like for someone who has a lot of very surreal, very weird dreams, <laughs> like I once dreamt there was a zombie attack, but it wasn't person zombies. It was seafood. And they were like <laughs> zombie shrimps coming after me. Love that. Right. And like I opened the the fridge and there was all these like spider crabs coming at me. And yeah. Wow. Okay. And I, there you go. I feel like that same state is what I should put myself in when watching a David Lynch film. Yes. Like anything yes. can happen. Doesn't have to make sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, he he will um he he will go with whatever comes to him or whatever dreams come to him at the time. There's that famous for anyone who's seen Twin Peaks, there's that famous image that so many people will recognize of that kind of red room with the mm. black and white zigzaggy floor and this kind of weird dream sequence. And again, like he tells the story about how he was in the middle of filming Twin Peaks and he he just rapped on a day in studio and he walked out to the car park and he like walked up to a red car and it was a hot day and he talks in, in in detail about you know the sun was beaming down and there was a glow in the air and and I put my hand on the roof of this red car and suddenly I saw this red room and like yeah I think that's just how he works he just like he goes on whatever random images come to his brain and then he works out how he can fit that into an existing idea basically I kind of <laughs> love that about him he's absolutely <laughs> mad <laughs> Okay, so let, let's begin then with the films. Uh, usually I let my guests go first, but I'm going to go first with this one because we're going to do it chronologically because we both decided that was important. Yeah. Um, so we're going to kick off with the 1977 Eraserhead. which I've heard there's like a thing that he came up with the title first and then fit the film almost around the title, which I guess Probably, is what yeah. you're saying about, you know, picking ideas. Yeah. Um, yeah. It is, a, well, it's been said it's a surrealist body horror film um, written, directed, produced, edited, everything by David Lynch, um, who also did the sound design. Mm. And it centers around this guy called Henry. Um, it's, it's weird trying to give a plot synopsis of this because it's not yes. the most uh yeah i mean it starts with his head over a planet in space and then he opens his mouth and this sperm-like creature comes out and then there's a man inside this planet that is put in levers mm, mm. and then um henry it turns out he lives in this weird industrial kind of estate landscape and he goes into his apartment and there's like a a very lovely woman across the hall and she tells him that his girlfriend's parents have invited him to dinner so he goes to this dinner and it's all very uncomfortable and very awkward and it turns out that his girlfriend mary has given birth to a premature child mm. and it ends up 
not being quite a child. Um, <laughs> it's very premature, isn't it? It's like a giant sperm, yes, basically. <laughs> yes, basically. Um, she moves, her and the child move into the house. It doesn't quite go to plan. And there's stuff like a lady in the radiator, more <laughs> sperm, um, sexual yeah. encounters with the woman across the hall. It's all very, like we said, dreamlike and non-linear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was a very good effort at, at summarising. <laughs> I mean, I definitely have got the easier one out of the two of us. Uh, I've got the more, more straightforward narrative to discuss because at Razorhead, it's like, what actually is it in terms of plot? It's that's, it's a load of old nonsense. Yeah. No, no. Like, even trying, like, my husband was like, so what are you watching? And I was like, well, this film called A Razorhead. And he's like, what's it about? And I'm like, good question. <laughs> you know? <laughs> absolutely don't know it's more like you know that meme of charlie from it's always sunny in philadelphia where he's got like the red strings and everything yeah 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 pretty much that exactly (laughs) Exactly. and again i think it's it's that but it's sort of the anti that too Mm. i think it's 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 the it's the perfect example of a film that doesn't warrant those kind of work it out connect the dots Mm. the narrative together kind of a thing you know i think this is a film that yeah, David Lynch's first feature film. He was an artist before this, and he made this film over the, co- the the course of years. Like it took him, I think, two or three years to make it, and he basically made it about his own anxiety about becoming a father. Right? He got his girlfriend at the time pregnant. I don't think it was planned. He was panicking uh, about being a father. He had nightmares, and this is his nightmare. This is his mm. this is his nightmare of having a child on screen, essentially. And and it you really feel that. Like you feel like you're in this man's nightmare, don't you? From everything yeah. from that like awkward encounter with the 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 girlfriend's parents to then being stuck in that little flat to the the a- absolutely monstrous baby to the constant crying and everything that happens afterwards. It's like it is like it's a big old anxiety dream, basically. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. Um, and I, so obviously, you know, I'm a parent as well, but I don't, mm. I don't know what fathers go through really. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I can definitely see like, there's also like this fear of rejection of your own child that, you know, when a mm. mother has a child, she has that, well, you know, supposed to, um, in inverted commas, they're supposed to have that instant connection and, you know, they've shared a body and it's all about the mother and the child. But like, what's it like for a father with this fear of like, well, am I going to reject my child? You know, is there going to be a disconnect between the two of us? Mm. Um, And then especially with Mary, his girlfriend, she seems to really suffer because whether it's like postnatal or just exhaustion, like Mm. she leaves at one point, she's like, I just need to sleep. Yes. And he's left alone with the child. And he's so like, I don't know what to do with this child and just leaves it on the table. And, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah. it really depicts that. I I assume that fear of fathers where they're like, what am I going to do with this child? I don't know what to do with it. Yeah, absolutely. It does. It's, it taps into such visceral fears for, for everyone probably, but I guess it is a particularly male story in that regard. But yeah, like the, the idea that your the child will reject you that it really has that feeling as well of just like having no sleep. Right. And I'm not a parent, but that's the thing I fear the most about becoming a parent is getting absolutely no sleep. And I don't know, there's something about that constant kind of like 
droning noise and the this idea that he never gets a single bit would well, neither of them really get a single bit of respite and that's why she has to leave midway through the film but like <laughs> i don't know that 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 kind of feeling of when you've had very very little sleep and everything in your world feels a bit jarring lights feel bright talking mm. feels weird everything noises sound weird this movie is like is that feeling right from beginning yeah. to end it's a, it's 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 quite tough to get through in that regard yeah and also just this feeling of not it's i don't want to be like kids are the end of your life but that's <laughs> <laughs> but they're not they're not i swear no um but there is that feeling in this film that now this child has come along what he wants to do and he's so there's a point where he's trying to go out the door and every time yeah. he reaches the door the baby starts crying again he's yeah. like oh i've got to go back and it's almost this like well is my life going to end now mm-hmm. and like i i associate that with because like even when i got pregnant the first time my husband was like well that's it we're gonna have to give up everything we're not allowed to have a life ever again oh. and there is that fear isn't it that okay well you're not you're not gonna be able to go out you're probably not yeah. going to be able to go back to, you know, there's there's this thing of like, he says he's on vacation from work, mm-hmm. but like work is never introduced. No. Past him just saying, so it's like giving up work, especially if you've got a baby perhaps that has high needs or, you know, yeah. any sort of, it's, yeah, it's all this kind of fear of your life ending. Yes, absolutely. And this is, again, <laughs> extreme version, I would yeah. <laughs> say, of a baby that has high needs, right, yeah. as well, because this isn't your average baby. But yeah, like, and I think, but there's also that, weirdly, I think there is also a sort of sweetness about this film, and there is a sort of love, too, between mm. this little baby thing and Jack Nance's character. I don't know how you feel about that baby thing, because I've spoken to some people who think it's really monstrous, it's really gross. I think it's kind of cute. I quite like it. And I feel for it when it gets sick, when it when it suddenly gets covered in all those little pox. And it's like, yeah. I'm like, oh, this poor little thing. You about know. That. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I'd be the same as you. But you know what I think it is with me? So I, when I was reading up about A Rose Head, um, David Lynch has been asked so many times, what? what is the special effects like what did you make I the know. baby out of and he's been like not telling anyone I know. and so i'm like that's a baby lamb fetus like that is a hundred percent a baby mm. lamb fetus and i think that's why i'm like oh <laughs> baby <laughs> lamb <laughs> yeah it is amazing i mean it looks and sounds amazing this film i think mm. we should say like it like you said in your synopsis it's it's pretty much entirely david lynch you know wrote it directed it edited it designed it designed the baby thing you know designed a lot of the production design everything the sound design and this kind of black and white cinematography and the the set and the soundscape and the weird baby creature and everything that whole actual eraser head sequence with the pencil factory and everything like it it does look and sound amazing for a a first feature right you can Mm -hmm. see why it became this kind of like grindhouse midnight movie success and why David Lynch became such a success off the back of it in a way. Yeah. And I just want to point out the sound design is yeah. it like, like you said, it's got this weird industrial drone constantly yeah. that is meant to put you at unease. And so I'm someone who like, can, I don't know about anybody else, but sometimes I can hear electricity. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Drives me up the wall. And mm. When I was watching the film this time, because I was watching it where everyone else was asleep in a dark room and I could hear that drone and I was like, 
is that in my room or is it? And I had to like keep <laughs> pausing the film. And there's also a ticking as well mm. in one of the early scenes, just this constant ticking. And that annoyed me. Like I was getting mm-hmm. angry and it was so strange to have this like visceral reaction to yeah. something that there's not a lot happening within that first sequence. Yeah. I mean, that is perfect. That is, that is, I think, sums up David Lynch, really. Like, it's it's more about the mood. And it, mm-hmm. and it, and it does. He is the, you know, the reason why I, I like talking about him in a horror context is because I think he's incredible at horror. Like, he, especially some of his later films that we're not talking about, but films like Fire Walk With Me and Lost Highway, he's amazing at dread. This feeling that you know nothing overtly horrible is necessarily happening on screen and yet you feel very very uncomfortable and you feel like something bad is just around the corner at any given moment and you don't quite know why you feel that way but you feel that way and I think he does that in a really interesting way just through his cinematography through his sound design through his use of color like he uses all of these kind of subconscious ways of making us feel very on edge you know Mm. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about the lady in the radiator. I think she's a really (laughs) interesting character. She's the only happy character in the whole film. She is. Yeah. So I read somewhere that she represents his desires or want to either um, kill himself or just to end everything and like walk away that he Mm -hmm. wants to like walk into the light with this radiator woman. Um, What do you think she kind of represents? Yeah, that is exactly how I feel. I've always felt about it too. It feels like this this sense of escapism for him, mm-hmm. right? Like, again, you're in that mad dream state. You're stuck in this tiny, tiny little apartment with your screaming baby. He's got nothing to do but sit and stare at a wall. He's staring at a radiator and he imagines this little escape route where he can go behind the radiator and there's this little haven. There's this, there's this bright white light and there's this uh, somewhat kind of pretty lady although she's got weird (laughs) puffy puffy cheeks like weird kind of slightly distorted face who is embracing him with open arms and also Mm. squishing with her feet baby creatures right like giant sperms and yeah it's almost like there's this kind of it's a slightly creepy but a slight kind of um it's a slight moment of escapism when we go to that other world behind the radiator all of the droning noise stops all Mm. of that kind of nightmarish soundscape stops momentarily right and we're in this kind of strange theatrical environment um again that's something that we see over and over again all the way through david lynch's career going back to things like the red room in twin peaks like there are always these like dreamlike um places that kind of don't quite exist in, in any kind of plane of existence and they and they usually have like theatrical curtains and stages and stuff and yeah i don't quite know what it means but that's how it always feels to me mm. like yeah his kind of dream of death or dream of just escaping that life that he's in yeah yeah and i feel like she's very much like the anti-mary like there's a scene where he's in bed with mary and she's like grinding her teeth and that's one of my least that's one of the most horrible bits for me that bit with her grinding her teeth i hate it horrible it's a horrible noise (laughs) then when he like lifts up the covers there's all those sperm creatures everywhere and it's almost like his reality is that he's now with Mary because his sperm creatures <laughs> created a baby with her. Yeah. 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 Think actually, no, thinking about that grinding teeth, I'm like, 
Oh, it's horrible. It's horrible. <laughs> it's some good, good body horror in this. Very good body yeah. horror. And also the thing, again, that I think people don't necessarily appreciate about this film and David Lynch's film and films in general is it's funny. I think mm. for me, that's what makes a Razorhead such a, it makes it more watchable for me is that it doesn't feel like it takes itself seriously. Like yeah. it, it knows that it's absurd. My favorite scene in the whole film is is the set piece when he goes to the parents' house for dinner. I love a good awkward dinner party scene, right? But that whole thing is played for laughs. Like mm. the over-the-top characters, the dad who's just like smiling at him the whole time, the little chicken, like <laughs> everything, everything about that scene is like weird and nightmarish, but it's really funny, I think. Yeah. Right? We we screened it about a year ago. Um, I host screenings in London quite a lot, and we screened a razor head at the Genesis cinema and it was so fun to watch on a big screen but there was loads of laughter throughout the film as well and I think it is supposed to be funny as much as it's supposed to be uncomfortable you know yeah I think one of my favorite scenes that makes me laugh whether it's meant to or not is when he is um getting down with the next door neighbor and then it turns out they're in a paddling pool full of white liquid. And it's just so like, <laughs> you're like, yeah, yeah, that's that's what would happen in a dream. You dream you were having sex with someone and then all of a sudden you're in a paddling pool. Like that yeah. makes total sense while not at the same time. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And the film does completely lose any sense of reality towards the end. Like I think the second half, we're just in complete kind of meltdown dream worlds, aren't we? Like that whole mm. sequence where his head comes off and gets turned into an eraser. I have no idea what any of that's about, really. But, but you know, it's a fun sequence to watch. <laughs> I thought it had something to do with him wanting to erase what had happened. That was just yeah. like... Yeah, that's a good... That's a really good good shout, actually. Yeah, yeah. for sure. That idea of like, all those little bits of pencil mm. erasings that, that kind of fly through the air as if to be like, let's get rid of everything. Kind yeah. Of thing. yeah. Although yeah. it could not mean that. And Lynch could just be like, no, I thought it'd be hilarious if, you know, their head turned into an eraser. So there is a theme of almost a fear of sex through a razor head. Now I was kind of questioning, I was like, is this a fear of reproduction or is it a fear of intimacy? Mm. What What is your take on the sexual theme in this? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. And, you know, this is, a film that comes from a very young man mm. and it it does feel like a, a young man's idea of a nightmare i think it's a, i think it's a fear of commitment basically mm. i think i yeah, think it's cool. it's not so much intimacy for me as it is commitment it's that idea like you said of that fear that probably mostly men have of oh my god my life is over now that i'm going to have a baby right and uh, and you know it's that on screen, I feel like, right? That, you know, this idea that like everyone around him is a bit weird and monstrous. He's stuck. He desperately wants to escape. He, there's this beautiful woman across the hall who he's kind of tempted by, right? But but yet at the same time, he knows he sort of can't or he knows he's not going to get anywhere with that. And it feels a bit to me like it's, it's, this, it's this crippling fear of commitment that uh, a, <laughs> a young guy like David Lynch was having at the time. Yeah, that that's a good shout. Um, yeah. yeah, I guess especially with all the bodily fluids everywhere, it definitely makes it like a monstrous, you know, mm. something that perhaps a young guy would be like, well, this is for pleasure. Actually, when something like this happens, they're like, well, shit. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, that's true. And actually, I suppose, I, I mean, absolutely, there is all that, like wrapped up, wrapped up in that, there is this fear of 
the body of like the the you know i guess maybe everything that happens to women's bodies with pregnancy maybe there's a the, yeah. there's a kind of working through of the man's fear of that too in mm. a way you know in a kind of like grotesque way i think all of that is absolutely wrapped up in it as well yeah yeah, yeah. so the ending um the <laughs> bless the poor little lamb fetus um oh. he cuts open its wraps and it, he discovers that it's basically its organs are just exposed and then yeah. he ends up stabbing the poor baby um and then there is this monumental light and it just kind of ends and i feel like because there's a picture isn't there of like a, a mushroom bomb mushroom cloud isn't there yeah. in the background so yeah. you're kind of like well that's um but what did you think of of the end god did you know i don't know i don't actually <laughs> know i don't think i have a reading for it in a kind of literal mm. way i guess it's just like the the ultimate end of this nightmare it's his way of ending this nightmare that he's in, which is essentially mm -hmm. killing his own baby, right? And it's this very bittersweet, dark ending where it's like, oh, is that freedom for him now? Yeah. You know, killing his child and 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 his whole world that he's been stuck in kind of imploding um, mm -hmm. or exploding at that point. Um, and that's kind of the end of it. And that's the end of the nightmare kind of thing. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. How do you read it? I kind of read it as another fear of like, you know, mm. so many people are like, I'm so scared of like accidentally hurting my baby. Yeah. And yeah, then my true. my whole world ends. So like I kind of read it like as another layer of fear that he has being a father. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I, I agree with that too, actually. And that is another one of my crippling fears about having children one day yeah. is something happening to that baby. Mm. You know, like it's a ridiculous thing to fear in a way, like almost the, like the idea of almost being put off wanting to have a baby because you'd be so worried about something happening to your baby. <laughs> but like, I get it at the same time because, yeah. you know, and then we were talking before we started recording about movies like The Coffee Table, which again is like, <laughs> that is exactly again, my absolute worst fear, like writ large on screen, you know? And uh, yeah, it is like that, that absolutely makes sense at the end of A Razorhead too, that mm. idea of that fear that if something happens to your baby that is the end of your world kind of thing yeah. as well yeah. yeah yeah um so what kind of legacy do you think that a has has left i think it's a, quite a huge legacy actually i think you know this movie was it ran for absolutely years in kind of um you know grindhouse theaters and midnight movie marathons and and you know it it, it gained popularity over and over and over again it um, obviously launched David Lynch's career. It also is the inspiration for other... This is weird, right? Stanley Kubrick, uh, it was his favourite film. Mm. And he made er the whole cast of The Shining watch Eraserhead before they filmed The Shining. So I don't quite know how, but in some <laughs> ways, Eraserhead inspired The Shining. So already that's a pretty good legacy to have, right? Yeah. And I, you can sort of tell, you know, in the way that The Shining looks and feels it's it's also a movie about mood right it's mm. kind of like oh i'm just staring at empty corridors and 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 yet there is this feeling of absolute dread and that is quite a lynchian thing so mm. kubrick was definitely inspired by a razorhead and lynch and i think so many for better or worse so many like indie young filmmakers who thought they could make a cool art house movie have probably tried to replicate a razorhead success in the last like four decades that followed <laughs> this movie so it's i think it's had a big legacy in a way and of course it it, it yeah it launched david lynch as this mad mm. um <laughs> art house filmmaker i suppose yeah, yeah. 
It's it's also influenced one of my favorite Japanese films, which is Tetsuo the Iron Man. Yeah, absolutely huge yeah. connections between those two mm. films. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Like if no one's watched that, you need to go and yeah, yeah. that film. <laughs> yeah, that, they'd make a great nightmarish double bill. Actually, a razorhead and Tetsuo. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I take it you would recommend a razorhead to horror fans. I absolutely would. It's it's a, it, in some ways it's a hard watch because mm. there's so little dialogue, there's very little story, and it's quite a jarring kind of mood. But um, it's 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 such an experience. You've got to experience it at least once for sure. Yeah, I definitely recommend it. Although I'd say I recommend it, but I it, I guess it would depend on the person or whether I could give them a caveat of be like, don't go in expecting like straightforward horror film. Like no. this isn't horror, as in you know horror <laughs> no absolutely it's not it's not at all it's um well tetsuo is a really great example actually mm. you know if you if you like movies like that if you've seen movies like that and like it it's it's very much that kind of vibe as opposed mm. to yeah like a, a halloween or a yeah. scream or something like that yeah. <laughs> okay yeah. let's move on to the next film then which i'm gonna let you introduce and give a brief synopsis to okay so this is blue velvet from 1986 and warm a memory through the years and I still can see blue velvet Hey neighbor Here I come You got about one second to live buddy through my so David Lynch, um, just to give you some context, th this is such a classic story of one of these sorts of directors where he had huge success with a razorhead. And suddenly he became a studio director and he made The Elephant Man, which was this like big Oscar darling, like this really critically acclaimed movie. And then off the back of that, he got offered all of these blockbusters. Like he got asked to, to, to do, and he got asked to direct The Empire Strikes Back, the Star Wars sequel. No and he way. turned it down because he didn't think he would be good for that, obviously. And then he made Dune. He made this big sci-fi epic and it was terrible. It's a terrible <laughs> movie. And it was an epic flop, like absolutely um, awful. And David Lynch should not be making films like that. And he had a massive falling out with Hollywood. Um, and basically, it kind of really kind of shut down his career for a few years. And it really kind of, he lost faith in filmmaking because he had such a terrible time working with kind of big major Hollywood studios making a big, you know, um, action sci-fi film. So he kind of disappeared for a couple of years. And then he came back with this movie that was kind of very much a non-studio, non-Hollywood. I think it was funded by kind of French companies instead. Um, back to kind of more personal things that David Lynch wanted to do. So we get this this story, Blue Velvet, set in the kind of suburbs of America. Um, and essentially, it's, a, it's actually a lovely, simple story in a way. It's a, it's a mystery. Carl McLaughlin plays this guy called Jeffrey who returns to his hometown to look after his dad who's just had a heart attack. He's kind of come back from college. And 
he's walking through a field one day and he discovers a severed ear and he's like holy shit there's a severed ear he reports it to the police they they uh, discover after doing some testing that that ear came from a person who was alive who did the ear belong to where is this person now Carl McLaughlin finds himself involved in this mystery he's so intrigued by what's going on in his sleepy suburban town and weird kind of criminal activity that might be happening he decides to investigate it himself him and his uh, school uh, friend played by Laura Dern who he's kind of got a crush on the two of them decide to investigate this together and what starts as a kind of innocent bit of detective work slowly becomes darker and darker and darker when he sneaks into a woman's apartment who he believes is involved in this played by Isabella Rossellini hides in her cupboard and witnesses all kinds of absolutely horrific things happening to her at the hands of this psychopath played by Dennis Hopper and he gets dragged into this horrible nightmarish criminal underbelly of his kind of sleepy suburban peaceful town essentially mm. I am going to admit I had a harder time with this than I did with a raise ahead really that's yeah. so interesting because I would say this is his most accessible movie in it, it quote unquote accessible like mm. in that it's got a very simple I would say Hitchcockian plot in a way, which is really interesting. So how come you struggled with this one? I don't know. I just, you know, when there's films that you can just, you just relate to and you can just connect mm. with. And the more I sit with it, like the more I sit with it, the more I'm like, ah, yes, yes. Mm. But I'm like off my initial reaction, I found a raise ahead easier to sit with. And whether that is because I am, very used to having weird surreal dreams that I'm like that's almost normal for me um mm. compared to this I was a bit like it took me a while it it yeah it didn't that's, quite connect as instantly that's really interesting yeah I yeah fair enough and I think it probably comes down to your own movie tastes a lot of the time mm. you know you're somebody who likes kind of more extreme stuff mm. or you know you like you said one of your favorite films is Tetsuo so I can see why you would prefer something like a Razorhead to this because this is a little bit more yeah, it's a little bit more bog standard kind of procedural detective like mm. story, albeit with some really weird, really horrific moments throughout. But uh, mm. yeah, I I I adore this film. This is one of my all time favorite movies. Um, it's sort of the film that I kind of tell people to go into first if they're looking to discover David Lynch. Like I feel like this is a kind of entry point in a way mm. to Lynch's work, and it's a theme that he. He goes with, you know, it kind of feels like this is the starting point to what he would make for the rest of his career. This this story about a kind of what what looks like a kind of happy, peaceful Americana type place, but with all of these nightmares lurking beneath. There's that classic mm. opening scene that's accompanied by the tune of Blue Velvet, where you see, you know, people mowing their lawns and uh, kids walking to school and lollipop ladies and everyone's waving to each other and it looks like this picture perfect kind of world almost too good to be true kind of world and then the camera kind of slowly like moves down beneath the lawn beneath the blades of grass and you see all of these black bugs eating each other and all the sound design suddenly becomes distorted and this idea of while everything looks happy and peaceful and pure on the surface there is all kinds of seedy nightmarish stuff going on behind closed doors and that is something that he runs with again and again and again that's kind of what Twin Peaks is all about that's what Mulholland Drive is all about and kind of everything he's done since really um so this kind of feels like the starting point to that for me um but yeah I'm a big fan <laughs> yeah I 
it's a bit of a I kind of saw it as a bit of a coming of age film for mm. Jeffrey that yes. he does start off as quite innocent, quite naive, and you know, pretty much a product of this white picket fence environment. Yeah. And then he goes through, you know, his dad has a heart attack, his mum doesn't really have that much interest you know he's always going out and whatever and he comes home with a black eye and she's like tell me what happened he's like no and she goes okay Um, yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. and it feels like he comes across frank um and dorothy which obviously is um there there are two names associated with wizard of oz um yes Yes. (laughs) and it's almost like he replaces his parents with these two in a Mm. really twisted way Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's just just finding that kind of like coming of age and family dynamic portrayal. It made me really uncomfortable, and that is something that I guess is what took me a while to connect with it. Because I was like, man, this film feels really uncomfortable, and there's certain bits in it that I'm just like, is giving me the ick. Oh god, it's perhaps, so icky. Yeah, I'm like, perhaps that's why I'm not connecting with it, and I'm like, no, that's what he wants you to feel. It's yes, absolutely. It is deeply icky. Um, I, I, you know, this is the thing. I talk about this movie like it's his easy to watch mainstream <laughs> movie. I, that's not true, of course. There is some deeply disturbing, weird sexual stuff going on in this movie. There is a lot of sexual violence. It's a film that's sort of about sadomasochism. It's about voyeurism, right? There's all of that going on as well. Um, it, it, but it's it's wrapped up in this kind of very classic almost 50s style noiry kind of detective procedural story and i think that's what makes it so weird and uncomfortable to watch there is one set piece particularly that i find very uncomfortable and difficult to sit through and i don't know why but the 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 scene when he gets kind of kidnapped and taken Mm. to the brothel and that man sings the candy colored clown song Mm. it's so weird i'm like what is happening what movie are we in now at this point it's like such a bizarre Again, a weird, bizarre mood that makes you feel deeply on edge and uncomfortable throughout. Yeah. Yeah. I found, and I, this is obviously on purpose, I found Frank to make me almost nauseous. And I yeah. guess because there is this like Oedipal complex theme running through this film, not just with Jeffrey, but with Frank as well. Like when yeah. he's assaulting Dorothy, he keeps saying stuff like mommy, mommy and baby. And I'm just like, what? Like oh, it's disgusting. It, yeah. It makes me physically gag. And I think like Dennis Hopper is just fantastic oh in this film. I, you, people want to talk about, you know, Jack Nicholson's performance in The Shining as being like this kind of unhinged, dangerous madman. I think Dennis Hopper mm-hmm. is better, you know, in this movie. He's yeah. absolutely terrifying. All the performances are really good, but they're all they're all big, right? As well. Like these characters are essentially barely characters they're like archetypes aren't they like Mm. jeffrey karl mclaughlin's character we don't really know much about him other than he's just this kind of everyman who clearly has a bit of a thing for watching women Uh, but other than that like he's just kind of like he's our kind of just like generic hero laura dern is this this kind of like girl next door isabella rossellini is this kind of i guess this kind of femme fatale type archetype this woman in trouble and then Dennis Hopper is just this quite two-dimensional monster, right? Mm-hmm. And all four of them, they are they're more like archetypes than they are real people mm-hmm. in a way. And and so they've all got these like big personalities about them and they all kind of connect to each other in different interesting ways. Like I think there's a bit of Frank in everyone. There's mm-hmm. a bit of Frank in Jeffrey, right? Mm-hmm. I think, that comes out as it as the film goes on. Um 
And again, there's this kind of theme that David Lynch kind of goes with a lot throughout his movies from this point onwards of this kind of light and dark, this kind mm. of, the, the, you know, the the all-round good guy versus the all-round bad guy and, and yeah. what that means and, and how much of that we have in us, you know, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. it's definitely like all of the characters definitely have like moral ambiguity that, yeah. you know, Jeffrey is portrayed as this, you know, good boy hero but he likes watching women like you know that's yeah. you know he's creepy and when you said there's a bit of frank in him there's a uh, he gets sexually involved with dorothy the lounge singer and when they first have their first encounter she asks him to hit her and he's like nope yeah. absolutely not not a part of this and then as the film goes on in their second encounter he gives into that and he hits yeah. her while they are having sex and that is the frank part and even, I mean, we could say that Laura Dern's character is perhaps the most moral, but at the same time, yeah. she's the one that drags Jeffrey into this. Yeah. Yeah. And there's there's a kind of pure sort of high school equivalent of being dragged into that dark world, I suppose, right? Because she's got the kind of jock boyfriend at school mm. who's kind of harmless, but yet she's being tempted into this dark world with this older boy of Jeffrey. Mm. And and so there is this almost equivalent, although it's a more kind of innocent equivalent of what he's going through mm. with Isabella Rossellini and what she's going through with Frank. Because the other quite troubling thing, I think, maybe with this film is that there is that idea that, she, you know, she is... She likes being hurt, Isabella mm. Rossellini's characters. And there are moments with what David, with, with what Frank does to her when you go, does she want this as well? Mm. You know, um, and you know, that's a that's a horrible, uncomfortable, murky place to be in, mm. I think, with some of those scenes, you know? Yeah, definitely. There and even I came across like Lynch saying something about Frank. He was mm -hmm. basically like, oh, you know, he's just in love, but he doesn't really know how to, you know, he's not a bad person. <laughs> and that kind of, that sat kind of weird with me because I was like, no, yeah. he is. <laughs> like yeah. whether he's in love or not, like that, you don't portray it that way. You know? No, like, no, it's a very strange thing. And Dennis Hopper, you know, like, because this this role was offered to Jack Nicholson mm -hmm. and Jack Nicholson turned it down because he read the script and he was like, <laughs> this is fucked up, no way. <laughs> Dennis Hopper came to David Lynch and was like, I, I, he said something like, I am Frank. He was like, I've been places in my life where I've been Frank. And David Lynch was terrified, apparently, of Dennis Hopper throughout this whole experience because Dennis Ho David Lynch was still quite young here. And, um, David Lynch is such a kind of sweet, innocent man, actually. You know, like when he talks in interviews, he sounds a bit like Jeffrey in, in mm. Blue Velvet. Like he's this, he doesn't like to swear. And, you know, the, the the character of Frank basically says fuck every other word in this. And but David Lynch never actually liked to say the F word on set and, and stuff. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, like Dennis Hopper absolutely kind of like threw himself into this character in a way that apparently everyone else on the set found quite disturbing you know so yeah it's a it's a strange uncomfortable movie to watch for sure yeah definitely yeah. do you think it's criticism of being misogynistic is warranted yeah I, maybe yeah and you're you're a much better person to, to talk about this than than i am and and i think this 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 um criticism has been leveled at david lynch's work throughout like he he makes movies about women but they are often women who are going through quite horrific stuff um and and often they are objectified too like he mm. he he the way he shoots and portrays women in his films they're 
they are like they're they are sometimes almost objects in that mm. way that Hitchcock there is a Hitchcock um Lynch comparison I would say and and the way that Hitchcock kind of portrays his blonde women is very similar to the way that David Lynch does I think um is blue velvet misogynistic i don't know i don't know what would you i mean i i would my gut instinct would be to say no personally i think it's a movie maybe about misogyny Mm -hmm. you know that is portraying horrific misogynistic nasty abusive behavior but i don't think that the film is in any way kind of behind that idea Mm. you know so i for me, I would say no. I think that we're supposed to feel discomfort and repulse uh, uh, and, and repulsion and disgust by what's happening to Isabella Rossellini. Mm-hmm. And I would say Isabella Rossellini's character, particularly, is in some ways the most three-dimensional character in that cast as well. In that, you know, in that whole world that David Lynch creates, I think she's got the most texture, the most layers, the most complex kind of nuances about her. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I I wouldn't say personally that it's a film that feels like it hates women. I, but but what do you think? I don't think so. And obviously, I'm always open to other people's interpretations. But I just feel that it is, like you said, a commentary on misogyny and things like abusive relationships. You know, yeah. like I said before, um, Frank and Dorothy take on a parental role-ish and Mm. it's an abusive relationship um but Dorothy stays around because a her child is involved so she can't leave because of her child um has been taken hostage by Frank Mm. so there's that element um and also she seems to have like a lot of people in abusive relationships have I don't know if this is the right but Stockholm syndrome I guess is would that be the right terminology um yeah yeah, she almost has this thing of like where she's using, she's got this, but she's also using her sexuality to kind of protect herself and to build a defense mechanism around her. Like, so when Jeffrey and um, his girlfriend find her naked, um, yeah. out, like that's a really horrible, like naked and beaten up and bruised and, it's obviously a really horrible and vulnerable thing that she's finding herself in. But her first thing to do is to like almost attempt to seduce Jeffrey in a certain way and to remind him that like she's his lover. And it almost feels like she's like, well, I'm in this really shitty, vulnerable, horrible situation. So I'm going to use my wiles to kind of build this defense mechanism around me so no one can see how damaged I actually am. Mm. And I feel that is something that a lot of people in abusive relationships do. Um, And yeah, and I also feel like the very last shot, which we'll get into the ending in a bit, but the very last shot of her where she gets her son back and she's cuddling him and it all seems bright, but she looks like when his back is kind of to the camera and she looks kind of forward, she looks broken. Oh, and it's, it's that like yeah. yeah but it's it's almost like a commentary like yes things can be better but she's always going to live with that trauma and it's Absolutely. always going to stay with her so i feel like if he hadn't have said that and if he hadn't ended with that it would have been a very different message yeah agreed i think i you know it's always a tricky difficult thing this and there are absolutely sides of this film that are a bit leery and are a bit exploitative but also i kind of feel like that's what that's what the film is about right it's about voyeurism it's about looking in at these hidden worlds it's about 
a character really reckoning with the darkness inside himself and his own kind of quite horrific primal desires and mm. and that kind of thing um yeah so it's it's a really tricky thing but but like i say and like you pointed out there i think there is so much depth and nuance to isabella rossellini's performance in this film i think it's it's her movie really mm. in a way especially like you say with, with the way in which the film ends on her with that like really wonderful haunting like chilling shot of like you say everything's all happy again almost fake happy right mm-hmm. it's it's so over the top you've got that kind of happy julie cruise music and the sun is shining mm-hmm. and everyone's happy and there's that there's that bird that is clearly a fake robotic bird it's like robin <laughs> and again deliberately so i think yeah. i think it's, it's it's kind of like laying out the fakeness of this mm-hmm. world of this robin eating a bug and and then we get to that what feels like a much more real moment with a mother and her son and you know that kind of happiness on the on the surface and then that kind of darkness behind the eyes at the very end there um yeah i mean she's just incredible in that film i think yeah the end really reminded me of the end scene of nightmare on elm street you know where you think everything's all fine and perfect and then freddy krueger comes out that is what that reminded me of and just and one of the the shots that really sticks out in my brain is the fire man going by just like waving and it's so Mm. sinister like it is it is it's really sinister and and it's it's because it because it's so over the top like Mm. that that idea of kind of forced fake happiness a fake Mm. utopia is sometimes much scarier than being in an out and out nightmare world like a razor head is you know it's um it's something more disturbing about it isn't there yeah Yeah. and it's even like when jeffrey and laura dern's character is in the kitchen with his aunt and they're like look at that robin ha 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 and it's like just bizarre (laughs) really weird really i mean there are so many weird moments in this film what's with the two dead bodies that are like upright as well in the apartment like what is going on there there are so many sequences where i'm like i don't understand this and clearly this is just something that david lynch just decided to go with because it Mm -hmm. evoked a certain feeling or mood right but there's always that kind of thing in even in this which is a a fairly kind of a to b to c narrative you know Mm, yeah Yeah. there's a lot of symbolism in this film and like i read something that whatever you think something is it's actually something else so even like Mm -hmm. You know, a, a blue velvet dress is a sign of attack or assault. Um, mm-hmm. Like the red, um, the the red roses is like almost like a sign of danger. And yeah, it's just even yeah. the robin. The fact that, like, you know, I think the last one of the last lines is like, "What is it? Something like, oh, the robins are coming or something." Oh yeah, that bit uh, when yeah, Laura Dern yeah, yeah. talks about her dream. Yeah. <laughs> It's like so cheesy where she's like, I had this dream and the Robins were love and love was filling. Yeah. And it's all like, again, a load of old nonsense really as well. And it doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel believable, you know? Yeah. 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 But there's all this thing that like, okay, the Robins represent light and the cockroaches represent darkness, but the Robins still have to eat the cockroaches. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I love it. I love it. It's, uh, it's, there's a lot going on in there if you want to look for it but also mm-hmm. it's a it's a it's a pretty 
it's a pretty straightforward thriller too as well mm. albeit one with some very fucked up uncomfortable scenes yeah yeah i did get a sense of jello from it like you were saying yeah. about hitchcock i feel like it's very jello-esque at times as well yeah yeah definitely um, definitely which i definitely with, liked yeah with that kind of over-the-top style there's a kind of melodrama almost about yeah. it and um, i love the kind of sound design too again like there's that weird moment when just after Isabella Rossellini's character has been found naked and then she, she gets put away in an ambulance mm. and she suddenly starts screaming I'm falling and then that kind of melds with the sound of the yeah. siren and then there's a candle that's kind of been blown out and there's a kind of distorting sound suddenly that mm. comes about at that moment and stuff and again it's just this kind of like he's using the filmmaking kind of images and sounds to kind of convey a mood rather than a kind of straightforward um, sort of dialogue or whatever in that scene, you know? Yeah. I do like the way he uses, and it's the same with the razor head. He uses um, diegetic sound mm-hmm. in his films. And yeah. I, I love the use of diegetic sound. I think it's an incredibly amazing like thing yeah. to use. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, like with the sirens as well, like that shook me up a bit. Oh god! It it was just so it's so like there, and it's such an uncomfortable sound. You're kind of like this, you know, like kind of wincing a bit. Um, And I just love the way that he uses everyday sound to make you really fucking uncomfortable. (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) everything is everything is nightmare fuel potentially in a David Lynch (laughs) film. Yeah. (laughs) Um. So I take it you would recommend Blue Velvet, since you said that you recommend Blue Velvet quite quite a lot massively like <laughs> honestly it's 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 one of my all-time favorite movies i think it's my favorite david lynch movie um although it's hard to pick a favorite and and yes i think there's so much in that film i think it does it does a bit of everything that you would want in a good kind of weird horror movie like this mm-hmm. um yeah massive recommend for me for sure do you think it's had much influence um in the same way that a razorhead has had yeah, more so, more yeah. so. I think this is the movie that really kind of created that kind of Lynchian vibe. And 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 I actually did an, a video essay for the BBC about this and about everything since that, you know, everything from like Donnie Darko owes mm. debt to Blue Velvet. Even Get Out, this kind of like mm. white middle class suburbia with these like nightmares lurking beneath. Um Riverdale even right like that you know how you know the writers of Riverdale said they were inspired by Lynch and Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet and American Beauty uh you know happiness these movies about America peaceful suburbia with real fucking darkness going Mm. on behind closed curtains I think you know almost every story told owes a debt to Blue Velvet you know every one of those types of movies that has come since yeah yeah. yeah. Um, so out of the two films, if you had mm. to pick one of them, that only one you could watch for the rest of your life, like one of them had to go in the bin, like which one? Oh my God. Well, actually, that's quite an easy one for me. It would be Blue Velvet because yeah. I love a Razorhead, but my God, I don't think it's an easy watch. Like mm-hmm. I couldn't just sit down and pop on a Razorhead at any given moment because it's it's a lot. It's like an attack yeah. on your senses. Um, whereas Blue Velvet, I absolutely could. I could literally watch it again right now. So yeah, it would for me, I would choose Blue Velvet. I'm guessing you'd yeah. be the opposite, would you? Yeah, I would. Yeah, yeah. I'd be a Razorhead. Yeah. Like again, <laughs> like it's again, it's not something that I do a yearly watch of. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But no, <laughs> I think for rewatchability, I would prefer to rewatch a Razorhead than I would mm-hmm. Blue Velvet. Yeah, so I'm gonna go fair. with that. Um, 
Do you think, just to finish off our lunch chat, do you think he will always have a lasting legacy in cinema and a, a strong influence over cinema, say like 20, 30, 50 years down the line? I do, yeah. Um, the, you know, about three or four years ago, the word Lynchian was actually added to the Oxford English Dictionary, no meaning, <laughs> meaning uh, basically meaning a film that is weird, nightmarish. You know, at, it, it, it's become part of the vernacular almost where like, you know, if, if a film is in any way strange, dreamlike, mm-hmm. nightmarish, people will describe it as Lynchian. You know, even yeah. people that don't necessarily know his films that well, you know, if something goes a bit odd or the narrative goes in weird directions or time jumps around or whatever people will go, oh, it all goes a bit David Lynch. There's even a mm-hmm. Buffy line when, you know, uh, there's like a Buffy episode when Buffy keeps jumping around in time and she goes, oh, time went all David Lynch. Like, it's become a, it's mm. become an adjective. It's become a verb. Like, I think, you know, he's he's got such a unique definitive style and particularly projects like Twin Peaks that are so important in popular culture have meant that he's going to be, I think, forever remembered as an important figure for sure and you know yeah things will I mean I'm guilty of this all the time I will always forever say anything anything weird and nightmarish is 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 inspired by David Lynch but I think it's true you know there's Mm -hmm. there's a there's a Lynchian element to all pop culture these days yeah I definitely agree with you and like even myself who hasn't seen a lot of his things I know what Lynchian means and I know you know I know exactly the visuals and the imagery and the the moods I know exactly what it is, even without seeing a lot of his back catalogue. Are you going to check out any more of his movies anytime soon? Yes. I. So obviously being in this business, you have like the longest never ending list of films to be watched. Mm. And Mulholland Drive has been on that list for years. And I... I mean, I have so many films to watch anyway for actual work, but I'm like, yes, I'm like, I before know. the end's out, I'm going to, before the year's out, I'm going to watch Mulholland Drive. Absolutely watch Mulholland Drive. Mm-hmm. And also, I think if you're an Eraserhead fan and you like that more, I guess, kind of slightly more hardcore style of, mm-hmm. of horror filmmaking, I would recommend to you Lost Highway as well, okay. which is really fucking good. And it's dark. I, th- I think it's probably his most horror out okay. of anything he's made. Right. And it's really nightmarish. And it's accompanied by like, it's very different to the rest of his films that all have this kind of like dreamy 50s vibe. Lost Highway is like, mm. it's um, accompanied by like metal music. And okay. it's much more like 90s, slightly more mm. hardcore and nightmarish. But it's very, very good. Yeah. Okay. Would yeah. you recommend like the Elephant Man, or I take it not Dune? The Elephant Man is <laughs> yeah, not Dune. I'd recommend everything else he's everything else he's made, and absolutely, if you have time, if people have time, Twin Peaks is unbelievable. It 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 ran for two seasons in the early nineties. There's an amazing film spinoff, Firewalk with Me, and then it came back twenty five years later with Twin Peaks: The Return, which is. Mm sort of david lynch's magnum opus really it's it's 18 episodes it's 18 hours entirely directed by david lynch so it's like watching an 18 hour david lynch film essentially which <laughs> you know that'll either be your bag or it won't be yeah. um and i i reckon i mean he's in his mid 70s now that might be the last thing he ever makes and if that's mm-hmm. the last thing he ever makes i think that's an amazing thing to go out on so yeah i would recommend everything he's made other than June. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually really interested in seeing some of his um, commercials that mm. he did. So he did one for the New York City Department of Sanitation. 
I need to yes. know what that looks like. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, he's done a lot of he's done a lot of kind of weird and wonderful stuff like that as well. I love it. Yeah, yeah. And he's done music. He's got albums. You can yeah. listen to his music on Spotify. Like he does a bit of everything. And I think these days he's more into his kind of other multimedia stuff than he is straight up filmmaking. Mm -hmm. He does weather reports every day on his website as well, where he's just like, it's a beautiful day in LA every morning. Uh, incredible. Love him. What a guy. <laughs> Okay, thanks for coming on and talking about David Lynch and I guess introducing me to another one of his works. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you for letting me drone on about David Lynch. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> um, before we go, I always ask my guests, what is your favourite horror film? Oh. Well, I have I have like three or four that I always mm. kind of have in my head. You know, Scream is up there. The Shining is up there. Um the innocence is up there but but mm -hmm. I, my go-to the one that i tend to say is i think is the most perfect horror movie ever made is the texas chainsaw massacre okay. 1974 i think that's it's not one that i can easily pop on all the time but i think it's the best horror movie ever mm. made yeah. yeah yeah it's like my second favorite horror film and it's mm. one that whenever i'd get drunk and come home from a night out i'd put on Wow, yeah. there you go. Okay, so you can just pop it on any given time. What's your number one? What's your favorite? Uh, the Exorcist. Oh, amazing. Yeah. 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 Good choice. Yeah. Let's not talk about the uh <laughs> the recent the recent um uh... No, 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 no. <laughs> I know. God. I did Everyone's try to pretend it. that everyone yeah me too i tried i thought it had a good first act but uh, that's about as much as i can say <laughs> i think everyone would rather pretend that film doesn't exist <laughs> bless david gordon green yeah. um, <laughs> um yeah. so where can people find you on the interwebs if they choose to do so um i'm on all the there's so many socials now these days aren't there i'm on twitter instagram blue sky threads all of that rubbish um you can find me on there or you can find my podcast on there the evolution of horror and you can find the podcast wherever you get your podcasts okay thank you very much so that was my chat there with mike munzer about david lynch and we talked about a razor head from 1977 as well as blue velvet from 1986 so let me know, what did you think of this week's podcast? Do you enjoy David Lynch films or are you a bit like me that it's just passed you by? Uh, let me know. Are there other David Lynch films that you think I should check out? Let me know on Twitter at what underscore scream, Instagram at what a scream, as well as TikTok at what a scream podcast. And don't forget to like, review, subscribe to whatever podcast platform you are listening to this on. Um, we are now getting into the festive period, so I will be having a run of episodes that include some fearful festive delights and frights, um, including an episode on uh, a ghost story for Christmas, as well as just normal Christmas horror. Um, so yes, stay tuned for those. And don't forget to stay horrific. Goodbye.